As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Classical Etc. I'm sitting with a couple of my friends who are all <laughs> teachers. Michael Moore, new guest, the Welcome. teacher, Tom Sculthorpe, and then unfortunately, Mitchell Holly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so before we get to our topic and what we're going to be talking about today is about being a teacher, but trying to be a teacher who has a little bit of breadth and depth, something that we would encourage all the schools that we're working with. If you're a homeschool parent, it's something that hopefully you're aspiring to gaining further breadth and depth. Um, in any, any facet of that role as teacher, there you should be aspiring to greater depth and breadth. And that's what we're going to talk about. Before we get there, typically I would ask what the people at the table are reading. But instead, I have to ask first, someone tell our audience what we were actually doing today. What was happening on the grounds of Memorial Press? We were moving objects from point A to point B. Namely, a, a massive stack of horse mats. <laughs> we did do horse mats. A uh, lot of books, though. We're just preparing for the conference. Uh, we have this conference uh, that we put on every year. Um, it's coming up. It's Adolatos and teacher training. So two conferences, really, in the same week. And uh, with that comes a lot of books. Desks need to move, be moved. The occasional horse mat, or 70. <laughs> needs to get <laughs> needs, carried. Needs to get carried. I, it's not unusual to see that Michelle T. Fertiller has told someone to get on top of one of the buildings and to blow leaves off of it. <laughs> right. um, you know, you just got to get the campus looking nice. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> most <laughs> including people don't, the roofs. Including the, the roofs. Yeah. All so gutters need to be cleaned before the conference. Most people don't know that, you know, they come to the week of the conference intend it's awesome and then they leave but there's just a ton that goes into it and, and memorial press we're a family company and so people don't realize that we do everybody that. Puts it in. <laughs> mitchell does greek and carries horse mats yeah so the one re reflection though i had on our day-to-day -day that i wanted to ask tom about is tom you're a former military man uh that's right so i wanted to ask you in terms of mitchell's preparation for the operation today and the plan that he gave us how would you grade his execution? Mm. <laughs> well, I think that the movement could have been better planned. <laughs> <laughs> so are we talking a D? I I'd mean, give I'm, him, I give him a solid C minus. Okay. That's not I as mean, bad as I thought. But it got done. And that's the thing about a C minus. C's get degrees. Yeah. That is what I've always heard. Mm. That's right. You know, well, you can't argue with that. <laughs> and just to push back on that a little bit, because that's what I like to do. I think it's clear that Mr. Holly had our benefit in mind by spacing out the amount of work we had to do. There was a lot of mm. resting in between yeah. lifting. As and, he was trying to figure out what we would do next. And I, <laughs> we I were all standing around. Very pleasant, very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. So there was plenty of time to sort of just shoot the breeze and yeah. not really do any sort of productive thing whatsoever. Yeah. In the Navy, we called that hurry up and wait. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so the topic before us today is about doing the opposite of what we did today. Not about running around and doing whatever Mitch says, but instead trying to cultivate habits of breadth and depth. We would argue as classical educators that to be a great teacher, one of the things that you should try to do is broaden your mind, even study things like philosophy. There's some people who would hear that and say, I'm a kindergarten teacher. I'm a first grade teacher. <laughs> My goal is to help these kids to learn how to read. Well, why should I care 
what old dead guys said. None of us are scholars, at least of philosophy. Um, why do you guys think it actually is important that the regular teacher try to answer some of those fundamental questions and what makes a teacher who is trying to do that a better teacher? Well, I, I, first, I just want to pause the question because when we think of the study of philosophy, we primarily think of a philosophy class where you're reading works of philosophy. And certainly that's, in common parlance, a very helpful way to sort of establish what we mean by philosophy, the study of the great philosophical texts. Uh, but I rather like, as it relates to education, John Henry Newman's perspective on and, and how he tries to situate philosophy. And he's trying to get us to understand, when he uses the word philosophy, he's trying to describe something else than that class called philosophy. Mm. In a certain sense, every subject is filled with philosophy mm. because philosophy for, philosophy for him is knowledge when it is impregnated with reason. Mm. In other words, whenever the mind is able to grasp things in the world, real things as they are, then a student is growing in philosophy. And so that means every teacher from kindergarten through 12th grade is engaged in some sort of exercise where they're helping students grasp the real, grasp what is true and good and beautiful. Um, and that is a exercise in philosophy. Yeah. Um, so it's important just, you know, I, I think we probably do want to talk about reading philosophical texts and how that can help. Um, but then taking a step further back, we might try to make the argument that as educators, every time uh, philosophy is more of a governing principle, right? It's helping us approach every discipline. Every discipline is sort of ingrained with um, and, and structured by philosophy in that sort of Numian sense. Absolutely. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I like Mitchell's explanation, but I think that there are also practical ways that we can approach this. For instance, if you're someone who has only dabbled a little in philosophy, but never really explored it deeply, or even just studied it, you might have some presuppositions that maybe we can't really know the reality of things. And if you're someone who thinks that, and a kindergartner comes up to you and asks you, you know, what's two plus two? What's stopping you from saying five and positing that as something serious? Now, I don't think anyone would actually do that. But the reality is, if you aren't studying philosophy and you aren't coming to true knowledge, nothing would stop you from doing that. Yeah. I think it seems more likely that not necessarily that you would have a teacher who would say, ah, nobody can know two plus two equals five, but it seems more likely to me that you would have a teacher who just kind of assumes this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And a, a student would challenge them and say, I don't think that's wrong, you know, whatever it is. And the teacher would have no ability to answer that question. Yeah. Because they would just, because of perhaps a unfounded kind of just relativistic moral ethic or no ability to go wide in their ability to think about ethical issues. It, it's also helpful to, you know, especially in the younger ages, you know, one, one way that I try to think about the job of an educator um, is that you're trying to help students see the relationship between things. That, that leads to an emphasis on breadth. Right. So we want to understand how math relates to the world, how history there, you know, we teach history 
uh, using following a certain timeline, right? And we do that intentionally so that students can see the the overall narratives of history, right? Um, and so teaching students how the disciplines interrelate, you know, um, you know, when you're teaching a science class, uh, one example I always use is uh, maybe we've heard on the podcast before, but when you're teaching about the atom, students probably it would be helpful to a student to know that, hey, actually for thousands of years, the Greeks even believed that we were made up of little bits, right? Now the belief that atoms have charge, well, that's, that's a relatively modern belief, but just being able to situate their knowledge of the atom and how we developed that through history is one way of letting um, a, a breadth of knowledge um, inform where, what they're learning fits, right? In the right. broad right. schema of human knowledge. So Tom, a lot of times it seems like a math teacher will be the kind of teacher who gets pigeonholed into the math guy. He knows, he does numbers, he doesn't do books and you know, that's it. But you probably approach your math classes differently because you're a philosophically minded person. You've actually tried to plumb the depths of some of these questions. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I would say that it's easy to um, kind of relegate math to a, a computational kind of an approach hmm. uh, where we are, in essence, training up computers. So unpack that. What, what would the computational approach to mathematics well, just, look like? Uh, learn how to carry out these operations with these numbers. And when you do that, now you know math. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would argue that um, in, in history, uh, pr mostly pre-enlightenment, um, that's not how mathematicians, scientists, philosophers conceived of math. Uh, math was integrated with um, everything else that we study and, and learn regarding um, the world that the Lord made. So, I think, I think it's very important from an early age to um, help students to, to see how uh, the, the world that we live in is quantifiable, meaning we can assign numerical value to basically everything. And, uh, and how, um, how what, so what they're discovering when they're learning their math facts is a language by which they can um, describe the world that they live in and discover the world that they live in. Yeah. So Mitch, how does a teacher who has a, a normal teaching job, which is pretty, it's pretty demanding, you know, half the year they're spending far more than eight hours a day because of the grading, the parent communication in the evenings. And then in the summer, many of them work part-time jobs because they're classical teachers and you know, they work in private schools. How does someone actually practically pursue breadth and depth who has a real, a real job? Right. Yeah. This is a great question. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think there's a couple steps you can take. Uh, first of all, I think it's helpful to recognize the, the classical paradox that the best teachers are actually just perpetual students, mm. right? And as, as teachers, we are always trying to learn more about our discipline, but then maybe trying to push the bounds of our discipline. How does, how does the, the bounds of history brush up against the bounds of science or, or the, or, or, or math or, or, um, you know, something else, right? So, so that's one piece of it, trying to grow deep in your discipline, but then also breadth, you know, how, how to have other people from other disciplines kind of spoken into what I'm, what I'm teaching. And then just very practically, 
you know, every year I, I, we had one teacher, uh, Shane, in, in our master's program that uh, always tried to rework at least one or two lectures a year. Mm. That was his right. goal. So, um, and what he's doing there is he's recognizing that every year as he's reading and having conversations and talking with people, his knowledge is going to naturally grow. Uh, he's going to grow in his ability to articulate uh, certain things to students, and he's going to grow in his ability to um, relate what he's teaching to other to other piece bodies of knowledge. And so he just made a commitment to rework one or two lectures every year um, that would sort of in- always just be developing, always be growing what he's saying. And I think that's very practical. You know, you're not going to have a sense to reap. You're not going to have the time, you know, to replan every year. Uh, what you're going to teach, especially if you're if you're a homeschooling mom, you know, and you you've had one student come through already, you know, you're not going to have time to you know, replan the whole year for the next student. No, no, but think about maybe there's a couple of additional lectures, there's a couple of additional insights, maybe um, things that you can discuss uh, with your student that's going to round out what your student might receive for something like that. I think that's just a very slow, steady, and maybe sustainable way to incorporate um, what you're learning uh, in the the classroom. Shane, I think that's a really good point. And Mitchell has been saying this implicitly, I think, but, you know, he's like way up here. So when I think in terms of what Mitchell is saying more down here, I think of philosophy as a way of life. So it's not just a subject to be mastered that you can simply study and then you're completed. It's not like algebra, maybe you can gain a mastery of it or basic arithmetic, you can gain a mastery of it. But philosophy is something that you should always be engaging with in everything that you do. And so it is encompassed in everything that you study and everything that you do. It's literally a love of wisdom. And I think that's, I think that's implicit in everything that you just said. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an approach that any educator should have. Yeah. So talk about, Micah, how you have tried to cultivate that love of wisdom. I mean, you said it touches on everything, but you know, how does it touch on classroom discipline? How does it touch on preparing a lecture? Yeah, that's tough. Especially for literature when I approach preparing lessons. Say last year we read Anna Karenina. When you read a book, there's actually quite a bit of philosophy happening within that book, whether a student wants to realize it or not. And some of it's moral. Some of it is even approaching theology. But you have to wrestle with what's in the book. So one of the main characters in that book, Anna, she is not what we would necessarily call a moral person, but some students who read the book are going to sympathize with her. And you have to make logical decisions about whether what she did is morally okay. And when you start doing that, you are actually asking philosophical questions. So anytime that I'm prepping for those lessons, I'm thinking through what actually are my underlying assumptions about what she's doing? Is it correct? Is it not correct? And then I'm engaging in philosophy. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that what you're describing just anecdotally in literature kind of brings us back to the fact that we all have certain assumptions about these big questions. So when I talk about you as teachers should be interested in philosophy, what I'm really speaking to is this collision that occurs when our assumptions about life's big questions meet reality and then sometimes it doesn't seem like they match. And so an, an example of that would be, what is your view of a student? Are they one that's made in God's image? Or do you have some other answer to the question, what is a human being? And that's going to deeply affect how you 
present yourself in the classroom. Mitch, what are some other examples of ways that those fundamental questions, those you know most important questions, are going to affect your role in the classroom? Um, you know, I'm struck by uh, one example. Um, you know, having taught moral philosophy uh, to students and worked through um, uh, sort of the Thomistic Aristotelian uh, philosophy, and and now I'm thinking talking about philosophy as a class, right? Where you're actually reading philosophical texts. Um, one of the big takeaways that you might one might receive from reading Aristotle uh, and reading specifically his Ethics. Um, and the later Thomistic sort of synthesis of um, Aristotelian philosophy is that uh, virtues are something that have to be habituated mm. in the life of students. And actually, he Aristotle, this is not me, but Aristotle calls students sort of dumb ox, oxen. You would never say that. I would never say that. But no, that's no. what Aristotle said. Uh, and he's, using, he's trying to use a metaphor there that they need to be trained. They need to be... Uh, and, and rules and laws might help cultivate the ground so that those virtues can can bubble up. Um, but the rules are second. The rules that you might put on, place on a student or on anyone really um, are secondary to that cultivation of virtue. And what he's really getting at there, and he goes on to talk about both lived out lived virtues and then intellectual virtues. Uh, and you ultimately see a synthesis there. So. One of the big takeaways I had as a teacher was in order for my students to grow in knowledge, they must first grow in virtue. In order for you to learn your Latin, you have to be the type of student who sits down every day and is faithful every single day to looking at a few vocabulary cards. In order for you to commit all of your paradigms to, to mastery, you have to be show commitment. Right at times you have to say courage, have to have courage because you have to sit, t tell your friends, "Hey, I can't go do that. I still got a little bit of Latin homework." Right, so a student will only grow in his knowledge to the extent that he has the virtue and character in place uh, to allow for those intellectual fruits to flourish as well. And so in my classes, I try to talk to my students about that. Will you be the type of student that will flourish in history? Will you be the type of student? that will flourish in Greek class or whatever. Um, and that sort of fundamentally changed how I think about uh, discipline in the classroom and, and how I, these are students who need, need training. They need little steps that they can take and they, and the, whatever rules that we place in the classroom should be geared towards establishing those habits of character that are orienting them and their minds towards truly good things. Yeah, I think uh, Aristotle and Mitchell are on to something here. And that is that um, in addition to recognizing that our students are made in God's image, we recognize that they are fallen hmm. and thus prone to uh, avoid the very kind of virtues that are necessary hmm. to gain the knowledge that we want them to gain. Uh, and so we have to take that into account right. and and make sure that uh, that that is driving discipline in the classroom. Um, if we give them too much room, uh, the likelihood is that they're not going to get what we want to get across yeah. to them. There's some philosophies that would state that if you allow the child to just have unfettered freedom, they will arrive at a mastery of all of these concepts on their own. 
I personally don't think that's exactly how it will work. And I think part of that is because fundamentally, I agree with you. I think that people are prone to shortcuts, to error. We are not prone to order. We're prone to disorder, even though paradoxically we resonate with order. So I think all of those things are just different philosophical concepts, perhaps things talked about by the great philosophers that really matter to me as a teacher when I'm trying to figure out how to corral these 15 rascals and get them to learn (laughs) something. So doubling back, Tom, we've kind of circled this issue of um, philosophy as a way of life is how Micah put it. What does that mean? I mean, that sounds nice. I, I appreciated you saying it, Michael, but I need Tom to explain that to me. And I thought you gave kind of an interesting answer to what that actually means before when we sat down here a few minutes sure. ago. Uh, so first I would say that, um, as Micah pointed out, philosophy literally means a love of wisdom. And so what comes to mind are the exhortations in the book of Proverbs, the father to his son, uh, whatever you do, get wisdom, hmm. get insight. Right? This should be the driving purpose of your life. And, uh, and so if, if a love of wisdom is the driving purpose of my life, then um, what wisdom am I loving? Right. right. And, <clears throat> you know, I would say that uh, we want to make sure that the wisdom that we are loving is derived from the Bible. Um, and, and therefore, uh, the concept of worldview, I think, is, is important here. So we want to make sure that as we pursue these, oftentimes these specialized academic disciplines, we're doing so um, from a biblical basis or a biblical worldview that, um, that I'm loving biblical wisdom as I pursue mastery in mathematics or moral philosophy or um, reading well or anything like that. Yeah, it's so interesting, the Proverbs example, because every time that there's an indication in Proverbs or an exhortation to love wisdom or to not be a fool, it's always directed to pers- someone who's reading it. Hmm. Is there anybody who reads it and is like, ah, I'm a fool, this part's for me? <laughs> you know, no, there's an assumption in it that you want this. That's why you're here at all. And that's that's kind of a, an interesting rhetorical tactic by the, 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 the proverb. And I think what it's doing is calling us to that love, right? It's assuming that you have love and trying to provoke it further. But you, you did mention a word, the word worldview, which has taken some flack on this pad, podcast in the past. <laughs> Mitch, what do you think about the word worldview? It's a very common parlance in our in our culture. Yeah, I think most people sort of use it as a shorthand uh, way of describing sort of how we perceive what sort of governing structures are 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 shaping how we see the world, right? Are we seeing the world in a more Christian way? Uh, are we seeing in the world in a more uh, atheistic way, in a more um, Islamic way? Um, maybe we're talking more culturally. We're trying to say, hey, do you see the world like you are uh, a, a European? Are you seeing the world like you are from Latin America, right? And we're trying, we're, it's a way, I think, in terms of the social sciences and anthropology um, and uh, sociology to sort of gesture towards these differences that someone might, these differences in perception, these differences in sort of how you would taxonomize things. Um, And so in some ways it can be a helpful 
sort of common expression. Everybody grows up thinking like, oh, tree. And then some someday someone says, if you have a Christian worldview, <laughs> you'll believe that tree was made by God. <laughs> and you're like, I need a Christian worldview. Yeah. <laughs> so that, and that part of it's helpful because it is, right? Sure. But the critique. <laughs> well, the critique is, is, there's a number of ways to critique what the social sciences sort of is getting at, right? But sometimes you can get the impression that, well, you know, Shane has his worldview and I, I have my worldview. Micah has his worldview. And we're all describing the table or in the real things in the world, but we all have our own sort of worldview that's sort of shaping the world. And so we relegate, that's the world out there. Um, and we we all have different, uh, we, we all grasp at the, at the real in different ways, right? Um, and it, there's not necessarily any way that I can critique your worldview because you see the world one way and I see the world another way. And so therefore that's, you know, we can't know, we can't, I can't really tell you that you're doing it wrong because it's, it's, it's immensely personal, right? So there's a number of ways that that can sort of go wrong in your logic there. And I took Tom to meet all of those things. Yeah, Tom, yeah. I, I would, he's <laughs> well, just attacked you personally. I don't know if you heard that. Al so, allow me to uh, speak in defense of worldview. Right, let's hear it. <laughs> when, I, when I use the, the, the term, I'm, I'm basically equating it with wisdom, um, with proverbial wisdom mm -hmm. by which the Lord created the world in Proverbs chapter eight. So, um, to me, worldview is not a subjective um, enterprise primarily. It can be, uh, but if it is, you're wrong because there is, <laughs> there, there is an objective uh, reality by which the Lord made the world and, if, and, and by which we can flourish if we pursue it. Mm. Um, and if you don't, well, you lack wisdom and, uh, and Proverbs says that you're a fool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't and, write it. Well, and that's that. That's a little bit helpful, right? Because uh, you know, according to the proverbs and the proverbial literature that we have in scripture, there's wisdom is this string that is sort of woven into the fabric of creation, right? And so, you know, you look at the ant, you you look at the the bird, you look at the 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 hen, right? And though from creation, we see that that logic, that that speech that mind of God that is sort of woven throughout how things should be, mm. right? And we're supposed to learn from the world, right? The, 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 the sage in Proverbs and in uh, the other proverbial literature that we find in the scripture is typically pointing to creation itself and saying there's something here in the pattern of creation that should govern the logic of our lives as well. We have to bend our life to the logic that we see in the ant and the bird and the um, so yeah, there's in a sense, you know, I think that that's exactly, that's exactly right. Right. And it may be in, in another sense, in a Nubian sense, that's what philosophy is, right? Mm -hmm. It's as we study the world, uh, we are asking, we're allowing our knowledge, our growing knowledge of the world to ask broader questions about how, who then we should be. Mm. And that's where philosophy becomes a way of life where we're, we're learning history, we're learning science, we're reading literature, and we're allowing those things to generate higher order questions about the person that I should be in the world. Mike, is that how you were using the term originally? Or do you, you before we were talking, you actually attacked Tom kind of hard and you said, I <laughs> yeah. think your use of the term worldview is really silly. It was pretty aggressive, if I remember. So the yeah, military that language sounds right. on the show. Yeah. Is, <laughs> that is definitely sounds like something I would, I would do. <laughs> well, you did it. And it's just, unfortunately we lost the footage, but so recreate that here. Do you, 
agree with Mitch kind of conceding to Tom that worldview is okay if you mean it in the right way? Or do you think we just throw that word entirely out? Well, I think that if you change the meaning, then what you're saying is different. So (laughs) I think that's a novel thought. (laughs) Yeah, go figure. So just to preface, I think that Tom's explanation here is fine. I don't really have a problem with that explanation, but the traditional use of the term worldview I think there's two thoughts that come to mind. First is what Mitchell laid out, which is this subjective, everyone has their own worldview. And the other is this almost modernist approach that people are these perfectly, completely rational machines that can just figure everything out perfectly. And so you create this entire all-encompassing view of the world, and there's absolutely no way to poke a hole in it. And I don't think that's always how people behave. And I don't think that's always how they function, even if that would be ideal. And so both of those views, I don't really like. But what Tom just laid out there, I think is more in line what I would call and what he did call wisdom. And that I do like, and I think it is meant to be a way of life. And Tom, I want to come off the high rope and just drop the elbow on you here with the final (laughs) argument that I think the, the other issue I have with the term worldview is that it speaks to perception, right? It Worldview is used to address knowledge, but it talks about perception like how you view the world. But the reality is a lot of knowledge is acquired not through the perception of the eyes or through, you know, informational learning. Sometimes you learn things through experience, through habit, through being habituated in a virtue, having certain rituals and liturgies that come to show you what's really true about the world. And I think that that term worldview maybe skews to kind of a type of view of knowledge that it's just all these knowledge bubbles in the world that we need to plug into our brain so that we have a full all-encompassing view of what's true or or reducing all knowledge to theoretical knowledge right Right. instead you know Mm -hmm. but you might you know the 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 guy who can sit there and throw free throws has a type of knowledge right did he read a manual on how to throw free throws that's what it's called, right? Throwing free throws. Yeah, shooting uh, free throws. Yes, I apologize. Job. My bad. Uh, <laughs> right. But did he read a book about how to do it? No, 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 no. His, his body learned. Mm. So there wasn't some propositional knowledge that he learned, uh, but he learned through doing it. <clears throat> and of course, you know, you can, I'm sure there's ways that you, have you already begun thinking about ways that you might try to No, I, I, would, I might say that um, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't see the conflict. I think that, you know, experiential learning, experiential knowledge um, is going to, uh, for the most part, um, it's going to match up with wisdom, Mm -hmm. right? So if you think that you can be lazy and successful in your life, you know, the, the Proverbs would tell you to consider the ant. And what will you find if you get a job and you're lazy? You're going to find that um, uh, want will come upon you like a robber, <laughs> right? And because you won't, you'll be out of a job quickly. And so whether it's experiential or propositional, um, you know, the, the, the knowledge that we come by um, is, is a knowledge that, is, uh, that, that shapes how the, uh, the world works and, um, and that allows us to live in harmony with the world that God created. What was the word that, that Martin wants to, so he wants to take he this to use cosmology. Cosmogi- cosmology or yeah. cosmogony? I think he said cosmology. Oh, okay. Hmm. 
Yeah, a brand new word. We've never heard such a thing before. Uh, <laughs> oh, he's not here. What do you see? There's plenty of opportunity to <laughs> attack him. Uh, what's funny though is whenever you when uh, when he's sort of walking through that, uh, you know, he's trying to gesture towards a sort of more full orb view of everything, right? Which ultimately bubbles down to the real. <laughs> right. There's, right. in other words, there's one worldview. Everything else is a negation of that one worldview. Right. <laughs> and uh, so in that I think also some articulations of that might be problematic because how our subjects, how things in the world present themselves to us and how we receive them as a knowing subject is part of what's real, right? Um, whereas I might, you know, perceive something differently than Shane. I mean, how many of us have talked to students before? We've lectured, given the same exact lecture to two students. And one student thought you're talking about your favorite, like, sport. And another student thought, oh, this was a great point about, like, the, I don't know, the the American Revolution. And you're like, no, <laughs> no student who thought that I was just talking about a sport. I That there was this larger point I was trying to make or whatever. And that's because, you know, Thomas Aquinas makes a helpful uh, point when he says that knowledge is received in the mode of the knower. So how the knower, it's uh, the, the thinking subject, how they receive what you're telling them um, is equal is important, right? They may not, it may, their reception of it may be, may hide or may only see in part of what you're trying to give them. Right. So I think there's, there's some, there's, it, there, it's helpful to sort of call worldview cosmology sort of, um, but also it's, it's prone to being misunderstood, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I think we can lay off Tom for a little bit, but I, so <laughs> the conversation to this point has been very anecdotal in terms of the things that we as teachers, the four of us have just found beneficial about other areas of our life where we're thinking about answering questions and how that's kind of come in. And so we've talked about worldview and as, and philosophy as a way of life and loving wisdom and how all of those things are important to us as teachers and as, as people. I'm thinking of the teacher who just isn't interested in philosophy. Boring. And they just kind of want to get through their day and they tr want to treat their teacher, their students right, get their grades in. What's your word for that teacher? What, what would you call them to? And do you have any encouragement for the teacher who's just feels like they're already at their limit and don't have any more room to think and to question and to complete continue dialoguing with the great questions that have been asked. I think there's a lot of things I'd want to say, but I'd want to clarify first, who's the person we're talking to. Are we talking to the person who um, sees no value in growing in knowledge? They are not a teacher, right? <laughs> uh, or at least we would be, we would want to avoid certain types of teachers with that sort of disposition. Or are we talking about the teacher who ha has limited resources? A family, a, a full-time job, um, and and so they love knowledge. They love learning their discipline further, or growing deeper in their discipline. Uh, but they may not have the time, the resources, um, the opportunity to engage in a book discussion, you know, over certain philosophical text. To that sort of person, I would say that. Or I would try to encourage them. The, the the small this is where the smallest things can be the biggest things. You know, spending time thinking about your discipline and about ways that you can uh, you can introduce your subjects to your students 
so that they can see the world in a different way so that they can understand more about how does rush like we talked about more more well, a while ago right how does russian literature help us perceive the world in a better or worse way uh how does our knowledge of exponents help us see and calculate see have a math sense about certain things this is where i bow to tom completely um you know so i, I think that that contemplating spending spending some leisurely moments contemplating the things that you do know and how that has shaped your world view use tom's word again uh, how coming, that has shaped how back. you <laughs> approach the world and trying to think of ways to bring your students there as well. Because yes, there's a certain amount of knowledge transfer that needs to happen in a classroom, right? But there's also hopefully a moment in the classroom where you're not just transferring knowledge, but you're transferring a way of seeing the world, the way that you've grown to see the world. So even those students who have not, or those teachers who have not read philosophical texts have a lot to offer in terms of philosophy, a way of living, a way of loving wisdom, a way of seeing the world in its trueness and its fullness. They, those, those teachers have a lot to offer um, their students. And so I would, I would encourage them and exalt them to spend a few leisurely moments thinking about um, the depth of what they know and how, what they see and how they can bring their students to that. I would, uh, I would add, I, I recently um, encouraged a group of teachers, especially math teachers, to, uh, to take advantage of the people around you, hmm. right? So, so we do, as teachers, we tend to be um, specialized in one discipline or another, right. and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but uh, if we want to broaden our bases a little bit, and maybe we don't have a lot of time to read primary source documents in ancient languages, uh, there are people around us who have that knowledge. At, and least, at least here there are. <laughs> here, sure, sure. So I am assuming that that uh, your one is teaching in a uh, in a cohort with with other teachers. Um, but uh, but I think that um, that's one of the best ways that we can um, at least start taking steps into disciplines that are tangential to our own or or um, seemingly disconnected. Um, I, I know I've been I've benefited from that already in these uh, first couple of weeks being here and sitting next to Mitchell in the office and listening to Micah critique movies uh, in the other room and, and things like, I mean, it's, it's, I, I tell my wife, my wife only work in my room, Tom. We do not talk about movies. <laughs> my wife, my wife, my wife says, how's work? And I say, it's a really stimulating environment. So, um, so I would, I would just say that, uh, you know, use the people around you who have um, knowledge that, you, you know, you don't. In one office place, you might talk about the price of paper in Hong Kong and also ask the question, what is the meaning of life? And that, that there might be a, yeah. like no transition between those two. <laughs> Pretty common. Pretty common. <laughs> yeah. I think to those teachers, I would first ask them to step back and rethink what does it mean to be a teacher and to think through the philosophy of that. Because you have to wonder, is a teacher just someone who's passing along information from here to the student? Or are they someone who's passing along information, understanding, and virtue and cultivating something else in the student? And I think once you can get to that point, then it's easier to care about what virtues you are actually cultivating in the student and what wisdom and understanding you are cultivating in the student. But a lot of people don't think in those terms. They just think, well, passing on this knowledge, maybe you'll get a career. Maybe you'll get a job. 
they don't think I'm passing on this knowledge and maybe you'll come to some real understanding about life and beauty and virtue. And I think, you know, well, one distinction I think it would be important to make is that not all philosophy is good philosophy. Mm. So for instance, I would much rather hire a teacher with excellent common sense, no knowledge of philosophy than someone who's only read beyond good and evil once and now thinks that there's no meaning to anything. Sure. And they're actually better than the kindergartners because they don't listen to the rules. <laughs> and the kindergartners are actually, you know, they're enslaved because they do listen to the rules. You know, so I would much rather hire the person with good common sense than the person who's dabbled their toe in bad philosophy. Sure. You know, my only pushback uh, is that you threw Nietzsche under, under the bus there. And while Nietzsche deserves, no, 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 no. listen, Nietzsche deserves <laughs> to be under the bus. Don't get me wrong. Okay. Nihilism. Well, one, one might, there's some debate of whether or not he was a nihilist. However, putting that debate aside, what is important about those who might one day read Nietzsche um, is to approach him like a proper villain. Um, so yes, he is a, someone that we should read and engage with, but he is a proper villain. He, he's someone that we need to give the time to yeah. and, and not at a kindergarten level. We certainly don't read <laughs> Nietzsche and then, and then sort of apply his, his idea of the suppression of the true self by putting rules on little kids. Imagine a classroom. If we adopted that sort of, Hey, we don't want to put rules on you. The, the fullness of your self-actualization might be hindered. So we want to allow you all the freedom that one, one kindergartner might need in order well, to get there. Well, I'm really glad that you said this because I want to be clear. I wasn't actually critiquing, critiquing Nietzsche, but poor readers of him sure, and people who approach him without understanding. Yeah. But I do think there's value in reading him precisely to understand the opposite of what you might should actually think. Um, sure. Mitch is saying that like in the Kung Fu movie, <laughs> Nietzsche is the master Right. And you can't treat him like the, the 30 cronies he sends out That's to right. fight the, the good guy. I completely agree. He's the master standing behind the, uh, the forces that you need to address head on. That's right. That's right. So Nietzsche should be read. Then probably thrown under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation just talking about our love for teaching and, and trying to attain some breadth and depth as teachers. Next week, we're going to be doing more of that. Not next week, but the week after at the time we're recording this at our summer teacher training conference. So I don't know if this episode is going to go out beforehand, but if it does, I hope you'll come and talk to us and we'll get to know you. And we look forward to seeing everyone who's going to be there. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of classical, etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.